Please listen carefully. Welcome to the Extra Buttery Podcast. This week on the show, we're going to be talking about some of the, the recent news in the movie industry, including Logan, Godzilla 2, and Star Wars Episode 8, better known now as Star Wars The Last Jedi. Then we're going to be catching up on what Jason and I have been uh, seeing in the past uh, couple of weeks. And then we're going to move into our big discussion about the Oscars, now that the nominations of, for the 2017 ceremony have been announced. My name is Robert Snow, and I'm here with my co-host, Jason Chen. Hey, Jason. Hey, Rob. How's it going? It's going all right. Uh, do you want to get started talking a little bit about uh, Logan? Because uh, there was a little bit of news on that front uh, just a few days ago. Yeah, that's true. That's actually a good spot to begin with. Um, so recently, it's been announced that Logan uh, has been rated R by the MPAA. Which makes it, I believe, if I'm correct here, the second R-rated superhero movie since Deadpool. And I think this is significant for two reasons. First, I think a lot of comic book fans have been waiting for an R-rated Wolverine film. Um, The character itself and and the origins of the character and the stories from the comics lend itself quite well to an R-rated movie. And the other thing is, I wonder if having an R-rating was affected by how much success Deadpool had as an R-rated movie. Because remember back when Deadpool was released, the uh, the R rating was something that people weren't quite sure about. And then all of a sudden it became this big, huge hit. Yeah, exactly. And I, I remember there was a lot of talk about how Deadpool was rated R. And it, it kind of annoyed me at first about how it diverted attention away from the movie itself. And all people could talk about was the fact that they were allowed to curse and they were allowed to show a little bit more blood and guts. And it, it kind of it warped my, my view of the movie. And I, I wonder if a similar effect is going to happen with Logan. I'm not sure exactly what kind of R rating or what exactly made it have an R rating. I'm sure the violence has something to do with it. But I wonder if the language is going to be over the top. Everyone's already making a big deal about how Professor X has at least one or two F-bombs in the footage that's been shown at a few of the conventions recently. And somehow that's, it's almost like the fans are reacting as if like their grandfather cursed for the first time in front of them. It's it, <laughs> it's, a, it's a little bit, I don't know, it, it seems a little bit naive to me that that they're getting so excited about it. How many F-bombs do you need for an R rating? Two? Three? I think it's more... Yeah, I think you can't go more than two. It's like some arbitrary and stupid number that they just pulled out of their butts. Yeah, because the MPAA is so conservative, right? And they, um, and I think there's even rules about how the F-word is used in the context of the sentence. So you can't... You can use it as like a... As an expletive, like you're angry. But if you use the F-word in the context of like expressing sex or, or sex act that actually pushes you further to towards an art rating which is it's so stupid you know the dumbest thing i've ever heard yeah I'm, I'm almost positive that that's the case and the the other weird thing is that the the mpaa is actually a very secretive organization if you look into it like it's very difficult to find out who actually sits on their board and uh of course and decides how the ratings happen it's a secret society yeah and and yet they they have all this control over how millions of people go to the movies. Yeah, that's dumb. But I think it's just very interesting to keep an eye on. Um, The other big news I wanted to kind of talk to you about was 
The Last Jedi, which is the new title of Episode 8 for Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And I kind of have my own theories about this, but I just wanted to ask you first what you thought of the title. I mean, I I, I hadn't been thinking a lot about the, the title being announced, and then when it dropped, I was kind of like, yeah, that, that that's a great title. It, it didn't seem to inspire quite as much chatter as The Force Awakens did when, when they re- revealed the title there. If I'm going to speculate, I'm going to think that obviously it's a reference to Luke and um, it, it, it goes back to the opening crawl of uh, The Force Awakens where he's described as the last Jedi and then, and then of course, uh, what Yoda calls him in uh, Return of the Jedi, Episode 6. Yeah, so when Yoda dies in Episode 6, when he dies, he says to Luke, yeah. When gone am I? The last of the Jedi will you be? Now you can interpret Jedi plural or singular, but I think it's a pretty uh, safe to say that I think at some point Luke will die in Episode Eight, and that will be like the pivotal turning point in that movie, because we still need to see him train Rey, right? And I also love the title for. Um, how it sticks to the old Star Wars tradition of very ha- of having very pulpy titles. Mm, yeah, yeah, that kind of B movie uh, background that the the original trilogy had. You know that that George Lucas was trying to draw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think I'm pretty pumped for the Last Jedi. And I don't know if you noticed, but in all the other previous Star Wars movies, the Star Wars text has always been yellow, but for this one, it's red. Yeah. Yeah, that was an interesting choice. So I wonder, yeah, so it's obviously teasing um, a Sith of some kind, right? Because red is associated with the with the lightsabers they use. Yeah, and the last time they used the red uh, treatment on the title was actually for Revenge of the Sith, Episode 3. Right, right. So I think this is a very interesting move. Um, I think because the title is out now, there there's all sorts of speculation that can be had. Now? Uh, there, there was a lot of discussion about whether or not it was uh, singular or plural, um, and you can you can draw on all of the material that's since been made non-canon to try to figure out the direction they're going in. Like, will we see Luke uh, found his own Jedi Temple now that Rey has revealed herself to him, and uh, will they try to recruit more Jedi trainees to kind of? Uh, oppose the threat posed by Kylo Ren and Supreme Leader Snoke. Yeah, and we also will probably find out more about the Skywalker family yep. and who's uh, Rey's and uh, Finn's parents are, and probably more about Ben Solo, even though we know who yep. his parents are, probably more of his background and the Knights of Ren and how he became seduced by the dark side. So I think all that's like super exciting. Oh yeah, there's so much potential there. I think we'll we'll also get a little bit more into that um, uh, flashback sequence where we see Kylo and the Knights of Ren standing in this rainy battlefield surrounded by the bodies of all the Jedi they've killed. Mm-hmm. Um, that mm-hmm. that was that was a moment that that drove a lot of discussion when the Force Awakens just came out, and uh, I think they'll they'll definitely open that up a little bit in The Last Jedi. Do you think there'll be any references to Rogue One at all? I don't know. I mean, I think uh, based on what Kathleen Kennedy, the the executive producer of like Lucasfilm has has been saying in interviews, she's uh, she's often reiterated the fact that they see the anthology movies as being, you know, pretty 
uh, self-contained and isolated. You might get a few fan service moments or a reference here or there, but I don't think they'll do any major narrative uh, hookups. Because again, just in terms of the chronology, there's what, maybe nearly 30 or 40 years separating the two blocks of time. So it might be it might be difficult to bridge that. The other thing was uh, Godzilla 2 has finally found a director and cast um, that girl from Stranger Things. Yes, Millie Bobby Brown. Yes, and it's one of those things that uh, is building up another yet another cinematic universe for people to to sort of tie all sorts of movies into and whatnot. Yeah, because uh, essentially what the what the the direction that I heard about for Godzilla Two is to link it to the new Kong Skull Island movie that's coming out this summer, uh, the one that stars Tom Hiddleston and Samuel Jackson and Brie Larson, um, so that Godzilla Two will actually be a big fight between Godzilla and the King Kong who pops up in Kong Skull Island. Yeah, the interesting for me too is that in the trailer, the Kong movie feels very tonally different from Godzilla. So I'm wondering how that all ties in. So like if you look at the Marvel and DC universe, there are obviously threads of uh, continuity and similar tones and themes throughout all the films. So this one I'm kind of curious about because when Godzilla was made and released, I don't think they had really conceived of having this huge cinematic universe of like two huge beasts going at it. No, not at least not the, those two characters specifically. I think they uh, it's is it Universal that's behind Godzilla? Is that is that there? Uh, I can't remember. actually. No. I don't think it was actually. It's Legendary Pictures, but I forget who the distributor is. Legendary Pictures was Warner Brothers. Oh, okay, so maybe it is Warner Brothers. So in, in any case, they definitely knew that they wanted sequels when uh, the Godzilla reboot in 2014 did as well as it did, uh, both critically and commercially. Uh, but I don't. I think the idea to bring in other monsters like King Kong and possibly other uh, kaiju from the the Godzilla pantheon. It is interesting, though, that they decide to go with King Kong uh, first, because I think since they're trying to cast this in a, in that more like realistic and like doing air quotes around the word realistic there, uh, do it in a more realistic light. Seeing King Kong and Godzilla go toe to toe, it's going to take a, a little bit of work on the part of the guys making the Kong movie to show that that's a matchup that makes sense. I know they've already increased the size of Kong. It's like he's going to be the biggest uh, King Kong that we've ever seen on screen in terms of scale. Uh, but can he fight against a giant nuclear lizard with atomic breath? I don't know. That that about does it for the news. Uh, but l- let's talk a little bit about uh, what both of us have been watching the past uh, couple of weeks. Because I know, we, I think we've both been seeing like multiple movies in theaters each week in, in an effort to catch up in time for the Oscars. What, what, what kind of stuff have you seen the past little while? So of the best pictures, I just have to pull up this. The only ones I haven't seen are Lion, Hidden Figures, uh, Hacksaw Ridge, and Fences. Yeah, I think I'm about the same. Uh, but let me just say right off the bat that Moonlight was the best picture I've seen this year. Oh, really? Hands down. Okay. The best film. Yeah. So better than La La Land. I'm going to have – you're going to hate me for this, but <laughs> I think La La Land is overrated. I don't oh, think it was that good. No. You're one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I didn't know about the criticism of La La Land going in. Like I always thought that everyone – The quote-unquote backlash. Right, the quote-unquote backlash. Um, I always just thought that people just like really, really liked it. 
And so I kind of went in with no perceived or preconceived notions, but I wasn't very impressed. Um, I think the music was quite good. It was catchy, but I didn't think Mm -hmm. Emma Stone or Ryan Gosling's performances were that great. I didn't find the characters very compelling. In fact, I kind of found them obnoxious. (laughs) I I did. And um, there wasn't a whole lot that kept me interested. Granted, I'm not like the biggest musical guy, but I almost feel like I enjoyed Chicago or Mamma Mia a lot more. Huh. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I, I think we kind of landed in a similar way about Hail Caesar. And I think the two movies, Hail Caesar and La La Land, because they, they romanticize or they have so many callbacks to uh, the golden age of film production. And mm. because I, I, again, I see so many classic movies, I'm always catching up on stuff from the, uh, the thirties, the forties, the fifties, the sixties. Um, I think the nostalgia that I the I get this wave of nostalgia or this or this wave of appreciation because I'm familiar with all the the callbacks they're doing, um, and that probably that that probably enhanced my experience with La La Land a little bit more. I don't know. So after I watched La La Land, I kind of read up on Damien Chazelle and and what he wanted to accomplish with the movie, and he said Singing in the Rain was one of his uh, biggest uh, influences. Yep. and that movie is one of my my mom and my grandpa's favorite movies. And I felt like if this is being compared to Singing in the Rain, this falls short, so short of what I think Debbie Reynolds and and, and what uh, Singing in the Rain accomplished. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, I don't think La La Land was particularly, um, it, I don't think it was a signature film. Do you know what I mean? I, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it is, it is probably number one for me. And but Mo- but but Moonlight does is in the top three for me though too. So I do get the um, nostalgia aspect of La La Land, but I also hate it when Hollywood you know jerks itself off on these films because they love movies about themselves. There's yeah I I won't I won't argue with that no. To me Moonlight I think is the most emi- emotionally charged most visceral film for me i think the cinematography in moonlight's far better than la la land as much as i love la la land and i loved what the the colors and the camera moves were doing i think i think moonlight for me is is a pretty close second because it is it is so uh like even like the colors just grab you and they they have like um like an emotional weight the other thing about La La Land is that I wouldn't be surprised if it cleaned up at the Oscars, but at the same time, it's the Oscars are kind of in this lose-lose situation. So if La La Land cleans up, then they have this Oscar so white campaign going against them again, right? If Moonlight wins, then it's tinged with the fact that maybe the Academy is trying to be political and trying to show people that they're not so racist. Yeah, yeah. So they can't they can't shut each other out at the same time. If they split it, people would be like, well, they're just pandering to both sides now. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. The lose, lose situation is definitely there. Um, I think the, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if La La Land cleaned up. No, I mean, and there was a, I read a pretty compelling article about, uh, by one of, um, I, I think it was a Hollywood reporter, uh, writer who was talking about the chances of La La Land actually exceeding the current record of 11, Academy Awards, which is, I think it's, there's three films that hold that record right now. It's Titanic, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, and then there's an older film that also has 11. And Titanic and the Return of the King, I feel like if you watch them now, I don't think Titanic is that good of a movie if you watch it today. And I don't think 
Return of the King is the best movie in that trilogy. In fact, I think it's the worst of the trilogy. Yeah, well, there there was an element in 2003 with Return of the King where um, I think there there was a whole uh, kind of consolation prize thing going yeah. on there where the Academy felt the need to give them a whole bunch of awards that were probably better distributed in smaller quantities with the previous two films and yeah. it hadn't happened. And they were like, well, this is our last chance to kind of reward the, the amount of filmmaking craft that went into the three films as a whole. Right. So it was almost like the return of the King was winning in such a, a huge amount on behalf of the other films as well. Right. So disregarding the movies I haven't seen, my top movies are moonlight followed by Manchester by the sea, followed mm-hmm. by arrival and then la la land. I'm a little surprised Hell or High Water got a Best Picture nomination. Um, I found the movie, while quite good, a little uneven tonally. I didn't think the soundtrack was as good as it could have been because there were two distinct sounds in that movie. One with like the instrumental music and then there's the one with the, the country sort of Texas music. And I felt like they kind of clashed with one another. But uh, Manchester by the Sea was excellent. Oh, yeah, I love Manchester by the Sea. I I was so pleasantly surprised coming out of that movie by how uh, I think a, a, a few writers had, had mistakenly presented Manchester by the Sea as that kind of like weepy movie that uh, is, a, is a real Oscar grubbing kind yeah, of thing. And it's totally but it's not, not that at all. It's got so much uh, like humor in it, admittedly, like dark humor. But it's not trying to manipulate your emotions and make you cry. It's it's being very authentic and capturing capturing things uh, about that whole process of dealing with a, the death of a of a loved one. It captures the little the little things that happen in that situation that some other movies would totally ignore. Yeah, and I think it's it's really it's really it's really an important movie uh, from that perspective. And I think Casey Affleck did a really good job of of moving through the character arc because in the movie, not only does he lose his brother, there's another personal tragedy that affects him. Mm -hmm. And which was a surprising storyline to me because I had no idea that was going to happen. Yeah. Um, But the relationship between him and Lucas Hedges, who plays his nephew is brilliant. I think. Yeah. I think it's really funny. And the best part about Manchester by the sea is that I'm always very um, amused by appearances by actors i haven't seen in a long time mm-hmm. so the first one was gretchen mole oh yeah because she plays um kyle chandler's ex-wife yes so she was in one of my favorite uh movies growing up which is rounders with matt damon and edward norton and she played oh, matt damon's okay. girlfriend and she had a really small screen time but i thought she was quite good so it's nice to see her again and the other one was heather burns um she plays the mom of one of lucas hedge's girlfriends the one that has a thing for Casey Affleck. Oh, yeah. And she had disappeared for the longest right. time. But I remember her so clearly from Miss Congeniality with Sandra Bullock. Like back when Sandra Bullock was like the king yep. of like all these action romantic comedies. And she played a bit role as a teen beauty queen from Rhode Island who was like the biggest airhead. And it kind of amused me that she kind of played <laughs> a, a branch off of character from that. Where she plays kind of like... Uh, well-meaning but a little bit airheaded kind of naive girl and i like i liked that there was so much in in uh, casey affleck's interaction with her and well uh, pretty much anybody else in the movie that that showed how much restraint he had to put into his performance and and that's probably what more than anything he's going to he's going to probably win best actor for that is you know 
if I you're think so. uh, the, his decisions to to make that character so stoic and uh, silent and like being willing to play out these scenes where you know the audience is just kind of cringing because the the guy won't speak he won't he won't engage in any kind of small talk and he stretches it and stretches it and it takes a lot of skill to do that with another actor and and for one of them not to feel the need to fill the silence you know there's there's some real craft on display there and as as much as i really enjoyed la la land and and i do really like ryan gosling's work in it uh casey Affleck is, is definitely the more deserving and i'm i'm hedging my bets and saying that it's that he's probably going to take it as well casey affleck did win the golden globes right the one thing i was a little surprised with was michelle williams um she's good as usual but she didn't get a lot of screen time not as much as i thought it would because she wasn't exactly a central part of the Mm. story like she's a central part of casey affleck's character but she kind of has one scene where she's um really important and they hash out their sort of their past experiences and regrets and whatnot but then other than that it's mostly just casey affleck and lucas hedges but i think that where in 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 other movies where you know a female role is kind of trimmed down and you feel like you need to see more of that person i feel like the decision to put her to put michelle williams character in that uh, less than we might expect was actually pretty smart on on the part of the writer director um, Kenneth Lonergan. I think he was I think he was he was being very particular about how much he used her in that. You know, yeah, they're they're in a small town, and it's more likely for those two characters to run into each other because it's a small town. Um, but then again, maybe it's not. Maybe they would never run into each other. Um, so right. I think he was, again, uh, the he was trying other to movie that I think I'm probably going to have to really disagree with you on is Jackie. I know you really liked it. I did not like Jackie. Okay. Interesting. I, I also didn't think Natalie Portman's performance was as good as everyone said. She's a very good actress. Like, she acts the hell out of everything. But I don't think she really disappeared into that role. Like, at no point did I kind of feel that I was watching Jackie Kennedy. I was always watching Natalie Portman. And it might have been just the crazy amount of close-ups that um, Pablo Lorraine did. Yeah, and at the same time, the structure of the film um, didn't work for me. The amount of tension wasn't there, especially for something that you're covering is so monumental. Um, there seems to be a lot of things, especially with Bobby Kennedy, that I felt were underused or um, weren't fleshed out enough. I think I will. I will have to disagree because, for me, I did feel that she basically disappeared into into Jackie Kennedy. Like I, I believe that she was Jackie Kennedy for, for much of that. But I, I will I'll agree with you that the, the the pacing was a bit strange, but I think that was intentional on the part of Pablo Lorraine. Um, but I don't understand why the pacing had to be like that. I think I think they were trying to he was trying to convey the sense of when you're in the aftermath of, of something like that, you know, your your husband is assassinated and, and falls dead into your lap, you know, and, and then all the pressure of her being the the first lady and having to arrange a suitable funeral and deal with all those those competing uh, pressures. I think Pablo Loren was trying to he was trying to convey like how your memory is kind of fractured and how her her memories were kind of jumping around and so he does that with the the use of the flashbacks and how things just kind of bleed into each other. I think that was very very purposeful on his part and I think Jackie is the kind of movie that. Once you see it and you get past, you know, you see it that first time and you get past 
the way it's put together and the strangeness of the score because the score is is very gripping like they the way they introduce it with like a black screen in the very first minute of the movie grabs you and doesn't let you go and then i think if if you do see it a second time which i'm i'm hoping to do the experience will change and you'll and i feel like i might appreciate things more on a second viewing and there's actually but not been that many movies that are nominated for the Oscars that I feel really demand a second viewing like Jackie does. I would see Moonlight five times more if I could. <laughs> okay. um, but the thing with Jackie is that, like, I understand the event itself is kind of fractured and the whole memory thing. But Jackie Kennedy, at least publicly, has always pre- or, uh, uh, been a very composed person in public, mm-hmm. very purposeful. Everything she does has always been, I think, well thought out. And she was like a notorious like art historian, like a person of the arts, right? Yeah. And I think with all the jumping around and the flashbacks and everything, I think Manchester by the Sea did a much better job of showing why each flashback had to be fleshed out and why each thing happens. Hmm. So there are a couple flashbacks in Jackie where I didn't really understand why he wanted to show that particular scene, especially the part where she's going around the tour of the white house. Like it might've been just, I might've just missed it, but I felt like some of the leaps were a little too, too much. Hmm. And that they, they didn't flow into each other as well as Manchester by the sea could. Cause the one scene in Manchester by the sea that really explains why Casey Affleck is the way he is, is the part where he's in the police station and he's being interrogated over yeah. you know, what happened. No spoilers. But I, that scene, I think totally, in that short period of time, explain the whole movie, right? But I didn't feel like Jackie had something similar. Yeah, I would I would agree with that, but I still think that I still think that there was a purpose behind that. I'm sure. I just didn't find it compelling. Yeah. All right. Um, but who do you think is gonna is gonna take Best Actress? Will it be Emma Stone on the strength of La La Land? Like, will she ride that wave, or will they give a second award to Natalie Portman just because? Because it seems like there there is a there is a consensus building that uh, a lot of people in the industry feel Portman's performance is pretty immersive and and she does disappear into it. Um, or will they go kind of? I think the dark horse in that in that contest is probably going to be um, Isabel Huppert. For Elle, the the new Paul Verhoeven movie, the Academy might go in a kind of like a Marion Cotillard direction where they they pick out a, a foreign star who put in some really great work. So I'm pretty right off the bat. I'm already crossing off Meryl Streep. I don't think she's gonna win. Yeah, I feel like she ate up uh, Amy Adams' thing, and and that kind of annoys me. Yeah, which is we'll get to that in a minute. But I mean, of the two performances I've seen between Emma Stone and Natalie Portman, I'd still go with Natalie Portman because I think she had a much harder role and she was more central to that movie than Emma Stone was in La La Land. Mm. Um, but it's hard to say, like Ruth Negga's got like a really good dark horse too. I think people are yeah. talking about her performance. Yeah. Um, so it's really hard for me to say, but uh, at least for actress and best supporting role, I think um, Viola Davis has probably locked that up. Oh, for um, supporting, yeah. I, I didn't see, yeah, I didn't see Nicole Kidman um in lion um i didn't see hidden figures either uh, we talked about about michelle williams i didn't think her role was as meaty if it, her role was a little more meaty i could see her winning it naomi harris was brilliant in moonlight um but viola davis should have been in best 
actress category. And going back to the best actress category, Amy Adams, I don't know how she got snubbed, but she should have deserved a nomination. Whether she won or not is a completely different story, but she was really the heart of Arrival. She made it work. Yeah, exactly. Did you see the controversy, though? About how, like, Amy Adams was listed as a nominee on the website for, like, the briefest of moments. Oh, yeah. That, and then that they changed really it. Yeah. So I wonder if there's – I mean, I think Hollywood's like a political um, junkyard. And everything that anyone does, there's a reason behind it. And I really wonder why she got snubbed. It just it boggles my mind. I think I don't know if it's because Meryl Streep still has a lot of old dudes in the Academy who are – on her side, no matter what she what she does, they're going to vote for her, they're going to nominate her, uh, and she still has this massive block of support. I think that might be a factor. Which is the dumbest reason for her to be yeah, nominated. Yeah, because, I mean, it's not like she hasn't already won, what is it, at least twice, if not three times. Uh, she's been nominated. It's like her 20th, 20th nomination. nomination. She's it's a crazy. record holder in that respect, so it's not like they owe her anything. And I think if you were to if speak to her in person, she would say you know, why do you guys keep giving me the awards? Why don't you cast some recognition on, on actors who really deserve it? And out of anyone this year, Mm -hmm. uh, and to your point, the, uh, for Amy Adams to be such a central, uh, presence in arrival, I I feel robbed. I'm sure she feels a little bit robbed. Well, she's a pro. She's been a pro throughout the entire thing. And she's kind of like, whatever. But again, like she also was in Nocturnal Animals. Right. And I heard she knocked it at the park. Yeah. So if anything, like maybe they should have given to her for at least one of the movies because her body work for the year has been incredible. Yeah, that's a good point, because it um, it addresses the fact that, you know, that there's always that uh, that issue with the Oscars not recognizing science fiction fantasy films. Uh, but you can't make that argument this mm-hmm. time because she wasn't noct- nocturnal animals, and I think there was there was enough support there that they should have given a, her a nomination for either of them. Right. Um, so yeah, it's it's just baffling. Who do you think gets the actor in a supporting role? Because I really like Mahershala Ali in Moonlight, but again, his role isn't very meaty. It's kind of like how Michelle Williams's role in Manchester by the Sea, how she kind of she's a central character, but she kind of pops in and then just doesn't uh isn't seen a whole lot anymore for the rest of the movie yeah i would agree with that i think right now it's a right now it's a pretty it's a pretty close like three-way tie between marshall ali lucas hedges who they might go with just because he's young and they want to recognize him for being such a, a kind of a unexpected presence in manchester by the sea and then they may go with dev patel for lion oh you didn't like jeff bridges i thought jeff bridges played like a character he always plays in all the other movies but he was quite good he's he's kind of nailed down that role. i mean oh yeah like no 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 shade on him whatsoever i loved hell or high water uh and i loved his work in it but i think the only thing that might disqualify him is the fact that he's already won in the past for uh, the best actor category and um they i get the sense that they may want to go with some uh previously unrecognized talent this time around Sure. And Michael Shannon always has a shot. I mean, he's brilliant. I wish he was in more movies. Oh, he's in he's he's in lots of movies. I've been seeing him a lot recently, but uh, you have to you have to go looking for him. And he's good in everything. Yeah. He um I haven't even told you about the Werner Herzog movie that I saw him in at TIFF, uh, which was flat out bonkers. Um, but highly highly worth looking into if you have two hours and some patience. Who do you have for directing? Uh, I th- that's a really tough one. That's too. really tough. Uh, I, 
I, it has to go to Barry Jenkins. If it doesn't, I might throw a fit. Yeah, I think it may go to Barry Jenkins. I mean, Damien, I, I do love La La Land again. I'll, I'll say that over and over and over again. And I think yeah. Damien Chazelle has done some great work with between Whiplash and La La Land. He's just burst onto the scene. I want to keep watching everything he does. Um, but for just in terms of the, the impact of Moonlight and uh, how... I think I think for the directing category, you really have to consider how much of the of the director's well soul or inner self is brought is brought forth in the work. And I would say because uh, Barry Jenkins' own mother was the model for Naomi Harris's character in Moonlight. Well, it's based on a play, right? It's based on a play, but but there's actually there's so many uh, parallels between Barry Jenkins' own life and the life that he depicts in Moonlight. And he's actually spoken about how his mother hasn't been able to see his film yet, despite the fact that it's been it's been this huge success and it's been nominated for all these awards. She's told him that she can't actually sit down and watch it yet. She has to kind of uh, get herself ready for it because she knows that the the crack addiction that's depicted in the film, you know, she struggled with that herself uh, in the past and she thinks that it'll be too raw for her. Yep. And it aspects like that, I I think the the academy will will respond pretty well to. So when when you take all that into consideration, I think the chances of La La Land having a sweep kind of diminish a little bit. Right. I, I hope it doesn't it doesn't go for a sweep. But I mean, other you can say the same thing about La La Land too, because Damien Chazelle went through a lot of the things that Gosling and Stone went through in his Hollywood career. Oh uh, yeah, that's true. And but other than the jazz element, I don't see a whole lot of similarities between La La Land and Whiplash. Whiplash I enjoyed a lot more, but uh, I mean Denis Villeneuve for Arrival has a really good shot at it. I don't know though. I feel like I feel like the genre thing is going to come back to bite Arrival again there. Yeah, which is stupid. I like you can't. It, it is stupid. I totally agree with you. I would have. I would have loved to see Arrival get more awards. You can't write films off based off genre. Um, Mel Gibson, the comeback story. Oh, come on, Hollywood loves that stuff, right? I don't think they'll give it to him for this one though. I think they. Uh, Hollywood is traditional enough that they may wait to see if he can actually make it a pattern first. Well, he's always been a good director. It's just that his anti-Semitic rant sent him back like twenty years, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Kenneth Lonergan, I think, did a really good job. The only issue I had with Manchester by the Sea, I think, sometimes was the music they used. Hmm. Um, there are some scenes where I felt that the absence of music might have been a lot more effective, but it also would have been a lot more heavy emotionally, and that wasn't yeah. the tone I think he wanted to create. But uh, I, I really hope Barry Jenkins wins for Moonlight because that's the first film in a long time where I've actually walked out of theater and went, whoa, that really just blew my mind. And mm-hmm. part of it's a subject matter and, and about race and, and uh, coming of age stories and, and homosexuality mm-hmm. that I don't think a lot of films have tackled in the past. And they've done it in such a way that is so unique to that film. Yeah, and everyone in yeah. that film, I think, delivers like an awesome performance. Like I can't fault anyone in that movie. Well, I think if if... Lonergan is going to get anything for Manchester by the Sea. It'll probably be in the writing category. Yeah, I think so. The script is very well done, and he is—he's first and foremost. He's—I uh, think it's—it's it's more accurate to call him a playwright than a, than a film director. He has had yes. successful films in the past, but um, uh, I think he a lot of a lot of what makes Manchester by the Sea work is the script. Yeah, and I was also really 
pumped that Kubo and the Two Strings was nominated for Best Animated Feature and Best Visual Effects. Yeah, that was a good the touch. the sheer amount of work that is put into Kubo and the Two Strings, which is completely done by stop-motion animation, the pure amount of work, just kind of like how uh, Boyhood and the amount of effort that went into it yeah. kind of made it deserving of a nomination and maybe a win, I think goes is the same thing for Kubo and the Two Strings. I have an idea feeling that Zootopia is going to win Best Animated Feature. Um, there might be a Dark Horse in there because I haven't seen Red Turtle or My Life as a Zucchini. But I'm really hoping for Kubo and the Two Strings because that movie didn't, if I remember correctly, didn't make any money. So it'd be a real shame if because Kubo didn't make that much money that the entire um, style of animation it does is completely lost forever. Yeah, and I would I would really like to see the, the Academy go that way just uh, partly on that point but also um because they've they've had a chance to reward some animation studios in previous years for for not going with the cg the pixar style of, mm-hmm. of animation like they um just last year it was um an irish film uh, song of the sea mm-hmm. that was nominated mm-hmm. and that that one was done with like a, a hand-drawn animation with this kind of watercolor quality mm-hmm. to it Mm-hmm. And it was beautiful, and it was, uh, yeah, it it was. Um, I think it was inspired a lot by Irish folk tales and Irish mythology, and but again, the the last year the the Academy went with like whatever was the top grossing big CG animated film of the year, and I'd I'd really like to see them shake it up a bit and and go with something that's a not the not the most popular style of animation. Give it to Kubo. The other thing is the best original screenplay. I'm really hoping goes to the lobster. Yes, I would uh, totally agree with that. Because it is so different and so off the wall crazy that I think it really deserves something. And it makes sense. Like, if you haven't seen the movie, I'd really recommend it. Go with it with an open mind. There are a lot of moments where you go, like, what the fuck is going on? But it all makes sense at the end. And if you can kind of suspend your disbelief about how our society works and what general conventions are... I think it's a movie that would really end up surprising a lot of people and actually find it amusing. Well, it's it's interesting. I've talked about The Lobster with a few people I work with and at least one or two people mm-hmm. uh, left uh, finished the movie feeling kind of depressed. They didn't they totally didn't agree. <laughs> they totally didn't agree with um, the 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 writer director's idea of what modern relationships are. They didn't get what he was trying to say or, or yeah. they found it Uh, excessive or something yeah whether you disagree with it or not is a completely different story from whether or not you think it was well executed well i I mean yeah that's what i would say but uh for a lot of film viewers like if they if they don't agree with what's being presented they 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 won't actually take the time to evaluate whether the movie itself is well put together they'll be just like well i don't like that um so that was the case with a few people i spoke to but then i would say a, a larger proportion of people who saw it and who i was talking about it with they they loved it the same way you and i did they 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 saw exactly what the film was trying to go for and that might have been the disconnect for me and jackie where like as a history major i'm quite well versed in what happened and i maybe just the material itself didn't speak to me um just the uh the presentation itself and the structure itself wasn't something that I had envisioned a biographical film about Jackie Kennedy to be. So that might be it. Um, but I, I think as far as biographical films go, um, if I think back to recent films, I think 
a beautiful mind blows it out of the water. And I'm not surprised Jackie didn't get a Best Picture nom, right? No, I think there there's things about Jackie that are worth giving it awards for, but uh, yeah, it's it's not one of those top top ten, no. top fifteen ones. Um, as much yeah, as I and we've like we've it. discussed uh, Natalie Portman at length about how I'm, I'm how I'm not the biggest fan of hers, <laughs> and how I find her quite pretentious sometimes. Ah, and so that's what I mean about acting in that role where she really tries her best and she does everything you want in an actor um, to do when they're impersonating someone else. But I don't think she was as good as say, uh, uh, was it, was it Meryl Streep as Margaret Thatcher? Oh yeah. Yep. Or uh, Helen Mirren as Elizabeth. Yeah. I would would say that with them, it was more, uh, I would say maybe a more fully fleshed out portrayal. But with Jackie, again, I think they're, they did some stuff to the way that she was presented to only give you like fleeting glimpses of certain parts of her personality and not the whole person. Which is strange because Jackie's in every single frame of the film, it seems like. But it's challenging. It's a, it's a challenging movie. And that's one of the reasons why I gave it a, a higher ranking, I think, because it, it did make me go, huh? I think out of five stars on Letterboxd, I think I gave it three and a half. It wasn't even a four for me. Oh, really? I went four and a half. Yeah. So Moonlight was a clear five out, five out of five. And I rarely, rarely give out five out of fives. You know me. I'm like super do, anal yeah, about we've... films. <laughs> That's that. That's a topic for a whole uh, another episode about how you and I do our rankings. Cause <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's actually really interesting though because there's a lot of biases involved, but I feel like I have a pretty set standard for what I think is a five star film, and you do as well. But we just kind of have different yeah. opinions of the scale or, or yeah. The and grade. I, and like I, I don't want to, I don't want to dive too deep into it now because I know we'll we'll end up talking for another another hour probably about it but uh, yeah. I, I think I always I always do end up going about a half star above you uh, generally speaking that's that's kind of the the guide but uh, it is interesting that I went a full yes. a full single star over you for Jackie um, and just for and just for the sake of context I went full five stars on La La Land I think I I think I went four and a half out of five for Moonlight. Mine was the reverse. I was four and a half for La La Land, I think. And I think four and a half for Manchester by the Sea as well. Yeah, yeah. Like there was just enough in each film where I kind of hesitated to give it five out of five. But after I saw Moonlight, and I saw it in a really sparsely populated theater. It was just mm-hmm. a local theater. It was really small. And there were maybe like 10 people in there. When the scene, when the last shot cut to black and the credits started to roll... Everyone sat there for a good five minutes, including myself. Mm. And I'm usually one of those people that, like, unless there's a scene to be to be seen at the end of the credits, yeah, like I'm like usually one of yeah, like I'm usually one of the first to just get up and walk out because I I sat there for too long and I need fresh air. Yeah, but that was a movie where like it ended and I just like I sank back into my seat and I had to like meditate on it. Wow. And I was like, wow, what did I just see? Because it was so different, kind of like a. Drive. When I first saw Drive with Ryan Gosling, um, not that it was like the best movie I've ever seen, but it had done things so differently that I kind of sat in my seat and I kind of had to think to myself for a while about what I had just seen. Well, I think that that really only happens with about maybe five of the movies that I'll see in a given year. Um, but when it does happen, sometimes not even yeah, right. But when it does happen, I, I will. It it adds so much to the experience. In my case, I was actually lucky too because I went to see Moonlight in a screening uh, that uh, was complemented by Q and A, a live Q and A over Skype with uh, Barry Jenkins, uh, right as the movie finished. Oh, cool! So they, cool. 
I'm so yeah, jealous now. More the reason for you to come and visit us in Toronto so you can get all get a taste of all the cool <laughs> things we do here when we see movies. Uh, but he Skyped live with us and took questions from the audience, and he was uh, he was great. Like he he actually complimented a few of the uh, people who asked questions on on uh, asking him things that he hadn't heard from the usual interviews that he'd been doing about the movie. Was there a highlight from that Q and A that you remember? I don't know. It's it it was a few, it was a few months ago now, so some of it's kind of like faded. But um, actually, there if there was a highlight, but it's actually a, a negative highlight, was this woman who got up and she was the last person to ask a question for the night, and mm-hmm. she was handed the mic and she said, "I wasn't sure if I wanted to come here tonight because I wasn't sure if I wanted to see a, a movie about a gay black man in America." Mm-hmm. And it was like silence in the theater, right? Because we we weren't sure what she was trying to say. That's a fair question, though. Yeah, uh, and it it just sounded so confrontational and so um, uh, like so in need of more explanation that the the tone in the in the room just completely changed. Um, and to Barry, right. to Barry Jenkins' credit, he didn't he didn't react one way or the other he kind of let her explain herself and the point she was trying to make was that somehow we as like a western film audience or like uh, she was she was grouping like canadians and and americans into the group mostly and she was trying to say that because of the results of trump winning the election and all of the discussion about the treatment of black people and the treatment of gay people in our society that somehow we didn't deserve a film as good as moonlight that's a fair point like i i know where she's coming from I know people who are hesitant to go to Moonlight because of the subject matter. And there are, this is a film where I wouldn't recommend to just anybody because there are some people who just have a very adverse reaction to the to type of film like this. And it is very interesting. One of the best parts about Moonlight, I thought, was that it didn't make a big deal out of everything. So no spoiler alert, but Marshall Ali is a big main character in that, or not a main character, but a key character in that film but he kind of drifts in and out and the mom too and uh his best friend kevin they drift in and out of his life just as it would in real life as well and so the violence the drug dealing the the drug use a lot of it's just like presented as is there's no big deal made out of it and i i loved it for that that it was it presented life in liberty city as they knew it not to someone who is like shocked by this kind of stuff, but someone who had lived there, um, seen everything that's going on and accepted all that stuff as part of their everyday lives. And so her question, I think, is quite poignant, especially in this era where people's attitudes about sexuality and masculinity are starting to shift. And in light of Trump being president, um, I think that's a very fair question to ask and i don't think she probably she probably didn't mean to be confrontational no i think i, I don't think like i described it as a negative highlight because it, it it did totally turn the whole attitude in the room on its head and it, it stuck out for that reason but i think the 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 issue was more in the way that she asked the question like the she didn't quite have the phrasing that she needed to uh, to make it really work and i think as a result barry jenkins struggled with coming up with a really cohesive answer moonlight's one of those films that it can be as political as you want it to be yeah you can use it as a commentary about society or you can just take it as is as a coming of age film so i think i read this this review about how 
calling it a coming of age story about a gay black kid is doing the film a disservice. And I totally agree with that because there's so much more that goes on that is more than just about being gay or being black or living in poverty. And there's a lot of stuff to take your mind away off it. Like the cinematography, I think, is amazing. And I love how the ending is ambiguous and how he, because of his upbringing, and you see all the kind of the key moments in his life, and you kind of see a reflection of Mahershali. So that really completes the character arc. And I think you can take the ending in all sorts of different ways. And I love that it had such an ambiguous ending. Actually, going back to La La Land, I will credit it for not having a storybook ending. Spoiler. Alert. Yes, that was one of my favorite parts of that because the, um, you know, the temptation is definitely there to to tell a story about two people who come together and then, you know, they go through their rough patches like they wouldn't in any romantic comedy. And then eventually it resolves. So everyone has a happy ending, but the acknowledgement in La La Land is that sometimes those kind of relationships don't work out. And in fact, if you do a close reading of the, the way that relationship uh, plays out, uh, Seb, uh, Ryan Gosling's character probably wouldn't have been able to actually realize his dream and open his own club if he had stayed with, Emma Stone because he kind of he I think he would have eventually become an accessory to her career as this Hollywood starlet especially for a musical it's rare for it to not have a happy ending yeah I mean it did have a happy ending but not in this in the sense that you think it should have ended this is like a reflection of Damien Chazelle's real life because if you remember back in uh, Whiplash Miles Teller's character dumps his girlfriend because yeah. he thinks she's holding her back yeah. or that he can't concentrate on his music career if he has a girlfriend that he has to spend with spend all this time with. Yeah. Yeah. So there yeah there could be something there. So now maybe maybe a good way to close out our our discussion about the Oscars would be to uh, uh to talk about how you're planning to see it if you're going to be seeing it at all. I am planning on seeing it. Um well, I mean I always watch like the first bit and then I just get too bored because it's too long. It's like three, four <laughs> hours, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. They've done some work recently to make it shorter, but yeah, it's still a bit of a slog, especially with all the ad breaks and some of the right. segments that don't quite and work. And they always get the not meaningless, but less popular words out of the way in the beginning. So I'll probably catch the monologue because there's always some sort of issue to talk about, whether it's the performance or the subject material. And then the middle part, maybe I'll, you know, drift in and out. But the, the last part for best picture, best actor and that stuff, I would love to see because I really have no idea what, what's going on. And this is one of the few years where I'm really rooting for one film and that's Moonlight. So it does make a difference if there's a film I'm rooting for. Um, in past years, there hasn't been a film that I've been rooting for in particular. Oh, OK. Well, now, in my case, like, I always make a big deal about the Oscars. I've done everything from, like, have champagne at at our, at our the family house. We open the champagne. <laughs> even even though we're just watching, watching so classy, like, Rob. Uh, American TV on, in the TV in the basement, you know, in the rec room. Uh, but this year, I think I'm going to go <laughs> even a little bit more uh, because I found out that one of the local second-run theaters, uh, just, like, a 10-minute walk from where I live, they're doing an Oscar watching party on the big screen. And they're going to have a red carpet and they're encouraging everyone to show up. And I think admission is free, but they're um, they're encouraging people to donate like a, a non-perishable food item to the local food bank. That's uh, a good idea. People to dress up in their in their like uh, evening best. Like, oh, you would love that stuff. That's that's totally my jam. So my jam is totally just like lounging around in a bathrobe <laughs> and probably no pants <laughs> with a coffee in one hand and just being like, oh, OK. All right. Well. This is comfortable. 
no, I, I'm going to go all out this year. So uh, uh, I'll report back on that. But um, I think maybe as we yeah. get as we get closer to the ceremony itself and a few more of the precursor races get decided, uh, we should we should actually broadcast our official predictions. Okay. Okay. So like, here's the thing though. For our predictions, are we predicting who we think is going to win or are we just picking the films that we like? Because it's like two completely different methods and approaches. I think we should do both because... Uh, okay. Yeah, well, that sounds good. Yeah, because one one thing I've done like in the uh, on the site in years past is I've always broken it... I've broken it into three categories actually for... I'll look at like, you know, the, the top um, 14 or 15 races, the ones that can actually be decided because some of the categories are so vague mm-hmm. that you never know which way they're going to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so take the take the top categories, the ones that people are most familiar with, and then list who I think will win mm-hmm. based on you know how they're doing in the precursor races and general whatever, and then who I want to win, uh, and then the dark horse in the category. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that makes that makes the predictions a little bit more interesting for me. Right, because then you can riff off how political the academy is versus what your personal thoughts and feelings about the film. Exactly. Yeah. Cause there's been many, many times in the past where, you know, I might've been right about, uh, right. Like the top 10 races, but I still feel kind of bad that I was right because some of those, some of those, uh, winners were not who I wanted to win. The only one locked in category for me is that the OJ Simpson documentary is going to win best, uh, documentary. You think it's going to, uh, it's going to beat out, um, 13th. Yes. Because 13th is pretty darn good. I haven't seen it, but just from the buzz alone, I've seen parts of uh, OJ, uh, but just from what I've seen and, and the, the kind of stuff it tackles, I'm I'm pretty positive that's going to win. If 13th wins, great. Sure, why not? I haven't, it just makes gives me more reason to go check it out. Because I think the uh, 13th has got a really good, a really good chance. And But the interesting thing about the OJ documentary is that um, it's actually an eight-hour miniseries, isn't it? Yes, so it's actually the first time that the that the Oscars have said that uh, those longer multi chapter uh, documentary miniseries are eligible for uh, an award for a quote unquote feature film. Uh, so that that's interesting in and of itself. If you know, whether even just that it was nominated, but also if it wins. Yeah. So this is where maybe the Golden Globes are a little ahead of the curve because they always have an award for best miniseries. They're ahead of the curve in that respect, but they're also behind the curve in the sense that only 80 people vote on them. Right. But I was just talking about voting to my friend the other day. I was like, I have no confidence in anything in any award that has to be voted. I'd rather have one person just come out and say, like, this is the best film. Because when you have votes, I think things can be easily manipulated. I think people are subject to biases. And I think people are just generally too dumb to do the right thing. And let's not forget, too, when you have when you can vote for multiple things, there's always strategic voting going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that really taints a vote. And it can because we all know how Hollywood works. We all know people have grudges. And a lot of the times these grudges are very, very real. Uh, the Hollywood Reporter uh, did a great series of of interviews um, starting a few years ago where they talked to mystery academy voters who are surprisingly influential and they talked to this guy and they didn't give his name they just said that he was like an influential producer but he went on this rant about how he deliberately didn't vote in the documentary category because he fundamentally didn't believe that the documentary category deserved to be at the oscars what a fucking joke and that was really enlightening for me because who knows how many more of those guys there are out there like crusty old dudes who remember how the the oscars used to be run 40 years ago who 
you know, have a lot of clout and sway the vote one way or the other based on some sort of prejudice. It's really stupid. Yeah. And there's a clear hierarchy and power structure that exists in Hollywood that most people don't know about. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. So, yeah, I think that's all the time we have now, Rob. <laughs> and with that, that about does it for this episode of Extra Buttery. As always, jump into the comments and let us know what you thought about the show and what you'd like us to cover in future episodes. My name is Robert Snow. And I'm Jason Chen. Be sure to check out kinetoscope.ca for more movies and TV. Talk to you next time.